Hello and welcome to the Evergreen Way podcast, where we explore how to be a healthy leader for the long haul. My name is Andy Needham and I have the privilege of serving on the team with Converge Northeast. And wow, what a fall it has been. We have seen God doing incredible things in our regions, different environments and gatherings that I've had the privilege of being a part of, sitting across the table from leaders, gathering with hundreds of leaders at our advanced conference in October. I just returned from some time away with some of the national team with Converge, and I'm just so grateful to get to have a seat into seeing what God is doing. This is a, a season and a time of gratitude, a time of thanksgiving. I, I hope that for you, that God is revealing through all the work, through all the programs, through all the Christmas services, all the things you're doing, that you would just pause and give thanks to God for his goodness to you personally and through your ministry. I am so thankful for today's conversation. Greg Sitters is a pastor in Cumberland, Maine, White Pine Community Church, and I had the privilege of getting to know Greg in my last ministry role, interacting with him in some different ways, but it had been a while since we'd reconnected. And I saw that Greg had finished writing a new book on discipleship, spiritual formation. So I reached out to him and I didn't know how the conversation was going to go, but let me just tell you, this conversation and Greg's wisdom and insight about how we can encounter Jesus in the everyday, in the way that we do ministry and not just the outcomes of ministry, it impacted me. I am so grateful for this. So I want to jump right in to my conversation with Pastor Greg Sitters. Well, today it is my privilege to uh, welcome Greg Sitters from White Pine Community Church up in beautiful Maine. Greg is someone that I've had the privilege of interacting with at different times, and this is a great excuse to reconnect today. So Greg, thanks so much for jumping on the Evergreen Way podcast. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. So Greg, I mentioned Maine, I mentioned the name of your church, but could you give the listeners a little more color and context to where you're serving and what God has put before you? Yeah, the first time I heard about White Pine uh, Church, I was living in California. I was looking for a new ministry, and um, I heard about White Pine through an email where the lead of the search committee said, White Pine is in the least church state in America, and we live in the least churched county in that state. So, I mean, that grabbed my attention right away because that's something that I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to serve in a place where what I did mattered and I wasn't just competing with other churches across the across the street. And um, the church started in uh, just right after 9-11. Um, and it was a church plant from some people who just didn't have a church in our area. It's amazing how few Bible teaching churches with contemporary music there are in this area. They're just... There wasn't one in, in the town. It's, we're in Cumberland, which is uh, just right up along the coast um, north of Portland. And there was no church like that at the time. So three different families started that church. And I came along, uh, I guess it was nine years later in 2010. I've been here for the last 13 and a half years. And uh, we're just doing our best to help people find and follow Jesus in this area. Now, tell me a little bit more about, I mean, obviously you mentioned the spiritual climate broadly from that search, uh, you know, 
posting, which is interesting. Thank you for saying yes to coming to Hard Place. I appreciate that so much. I uh, love the work that you've done there. But as you've been boots on the ground now 13 years, what have you discovered? Um, you know, maybe something that was surprising, but also just a little bit about the context of the people that you get to serve there uh, in, Cumber- in Cumberland and right beyond. Well, th- one of the things that I have is a little broader perspective from having served in other places, sp- especially California. That's where I spent most of my ministry years. And people here, I think, do not understand how dark the area is spiritually because, you know, they live in it. And so it just seems really normal to them. But um, it's it's a very challenging place, and it takes a long time to engage people spiritually, and it, 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 way longer than I ever thought that it would. Um, so here I am 13 years in, and I'm just getting started in some relationships with people. And I have a um, my um, colleague in ministry, he leads a lot of people to Christ on their deathbed. So, I mean, it really can take a long time to um, for people to understand their need for Jesus. And yet at the same time, because it's an adverse spiritual climate, there are a lot of people who are deeply committed to Jesus. You kind of have to be uh, to really thrive in this environment. So I love the fact that we have some people that are, you know, sold out to Jesus. It's not a, it's not the kind of numbers that you might see in other places, but it's exciting as a leader to work with people like that. And uh, for whatever reason, just the way that I'm wired, um, I'm okay with long-term ministry, just being real patient with people. Um, I actually really like the um, kind of the overall culture, the way that people are in this area. I enjoy, I enjoy the fact that people are very real, that um, they're, there's just, they're just um, they wear it all on their sleeve. You know, you know what they're thinking. And I, I love that. I love being able to just work with people that are very honest. And um, yeah, so, um, you know, my goal is to be here for the rest of my of my ministry and I'm happy to do it. What do you think, um, you know, coming, obviously this could be a lot of conversation about California versus Maine, but in terms of for you personally, what do you think has prepared your heart and your ministry focus to be able to do that? Because I, I, I'll say as somebody born and raised here, uh, sometimes there's a, a healthy skepticism, sometimes an unhealthy skepticism of people coming from other parts of the country to do ministry in the Northeast. But God, obviously, you said he wired it into you. But how do you feel like he prepared you uh, for that transition? I think that <clears throat> there's a few things. One is I um, I have a romantic love for this area. So, I mean, I just really love the Northeast. I've kind of always, my whole life, wanted to be here. And I never, I, I, I always lived a long ways away. So just the opportunity to come to a place that is so beautiful. Um, um, and I'm, I'm a photographer. So, I mean, that's some, something that I just really, really enjoy. There's that part of it. And also, um, when I was just starting out in ministry, my goal was actually to be a, a missionary in Ireland. And if there's any place that I know of that is as dark as New England is, it's the country of Ireland. And that was an attraction to me, again, because I wanted to be someplace where I mattered. And um, my wife, Robin, and I got married on St. Patrick's Day. We named our kids Sean, Brian, and Kyle. I mean, we were headed to Ireland. And got, I, we've never been to Ireland at, married. But what we what did happen is we got a chance to come to a place that is somewhat similar in the spiritual climate. 
So I don't know. I don't know why, but um, I not everybody for sure can handle the um, the opposition, the coldness that um, you might experience from people spiritually. But um, for me, it just fits who I am. And I kind of burned out all my ambitions in, uh, in California, trying to do ministry in a bigger way. And um, I flamed out on that. So I was just kind of ready to just kind of get down to doing like boots on the ground, ministry with people, like the, the kind of thing that brings you into ministry in the first place. You, most people get into ministry because they love Jesus and they want to help other people fall in love with Jesus. And then the church kind of swallows them up. And uh, so I kind of went through a season where that happened to me. And by the time I came here, I just wanted to follow Jesus again. And I wanted to help other people to do that. And it's very organic, you know, to do ministry here. And I just love that about it. Well, you give me a lot of joy just hearing you share. Uh, it encourages my my heart as uh, someone born and raised here and concerned. The you know I love the you know there is a hard nature to the field here, but we have the truth of the gospel, and we uh, faithful workers like you encourage me so much. So thank you for for that. Um, one of the things that sparked uh, me reaching out to you, um, you've become increasingly prolific in writing. I've been able to interact with some of your written work, and thank you for being so courageous just to put that out there and to share with others. And um, you recently put together a work on spiritual formation, a book, a new book called follow me. And um, you have this sentence that is right at the uh, entry point of the book where you talk about that you came into, let me find the quote here. Soon after I decided to follow Jesus, I started avoiding him at all costs. That is an interesting statement, especially set against what you've already shared. Could you kind of unpack that for for me and then how God changed your heart? Yeah, absolutely. Well, this book is definitely the fruit of a lifetime of following Jesus. I started working on this when I was probably 20 years old because that's that's when I became a Christian. I was a I just finished my sophomore year of college. Um I had grown up in church, but I had no interest at all in Jesus, and it was a very dramatic conversion for me. Um I had grown up being afraid of death. And as soon as I decided to follow Jesus in response to a very personal invitation from him, um, I was thrilled. And all I wanted, I mean, I, I was the hungriest new Christian you could imagine. I gra- I've got a Bible as quick as I could. I started reading in the gospels as quick as I could. And I mean, I hit the wall because I started reading radical stuff that Jesus taught. And I didn't even know that he said these kind of things, you know, like, you know, take up your cross and hate your father and mother and give up all of your possessions and be slave of all and all this stuff that he said. And I was, um, I was, it's the best word for it. I I guess I experienced a sort of vertigo. Like what, Mm. what have I gotten myself into? I actually thought for a little while that someone had slipped me like a, defective Bible. And I mm-hmm. compared my Bible to my friends to see if theirs said the same thing that mine did. And when I realized that it that was actually what Jesus taught, I was, af- I was kind of afraid of him. And I learned pretty quickly that you can get along as a Christian as long, you know, you can spend a lot of time in the epistles. You can get past the gospels and, and read the in other parts of the Bible. And it's just not nearly as I guess threatening, as I, as that felt to me, and for me the the second really important point was when I just realized one day 
that I could not call myself a Christian if I didn't follow Christ. And so I had to go back into the Gospels and I had to re-engage with that stuff that I had avoided. And that's when I learned what every Christian learns, which is that, you know, when you first hear Jesus teach, it sounds really daunting. But as you do the things that he tells you to do, as you begin to obey him, that's where you experience the life that he promised. That's where you experience that light burden, that easy yoke that he promised. It doesn't look like that from a distance. But once you start to live your life as a follower of Jesus, that's when you really experience, you know, the abundant life that he promised. So you you already maybe have touched in on this, but you talk about the discipleship sayings of Jesus. Could you explore that a little bit? Yeah, well, I uh, my first job out of seminary was as a discipleship pastor, and and I had been in a parachurch ministry. Um, and so I learned a lot in that ministry in college about how to make disciples. That, that That's something that we still talk about today a lot. The process that you use, the strategy that you use, the programs that you use to help people to be better at following Jesus. But in my experience, there wasn't a lot of focus on the actual teachings of Jesus. So what we were doing is we were teaching people how to shoot a, a bow and arrow, but we weren't, we weren't showing them where the target was. Hmm. And I just felt like we're just really missing the most important thing. Discipleship is not a word that primarily describes our relationship with other people and how we help them grow. It primarily describes our relationship with Jesus. And so when I went into the, into the Gospels and I just looked at the word disciple, um, I found that there were seven places where Jesus said, this is what it means to be my disciple. Uh, John 8, 31, um, if you hold to my teaching, you're my disciple. Then you get into Luke 14, verse 26, um, hate, if you hate your father and mother. Then verse 27, uh, take up your, if, you, if you, anyone who doesn't take up their cross and follow me can't be my disciple. Verse 33, if you don't give up all of your possessions, you can't be my disciple. Then you're back in John chronologically in chapter 13, where Jesus says, if you love one another, all people will know that you're my disciples. John 15, if you bear much fruit, you'll prove to be my disciples. Mm. And then the Great Commission in Matthew 28, go and make disciples. That's seven different statements. And actually, this book is built around those seven passages because I feel like that's the irreducible minimum. If you want to talk about discipleship, you better cover those places where Jesus actually used the word. Uh, I'm sure that each person will find a different element of that challenging. But if you look at the church, especially Western church, you can even go New England church or main church, but like, where, where do you think we struggle the most in terms of applying that, those challenges that Jesus gives us? Well, for sure. Um, to, we struggle with, um, all of them to the extent that we really get it because they're all very, very challenging. But the ones that have the most immediate impact on us in Western culture, I think, uh, I think um, Luke 14, 33, if anyone doesn't give up all of their own possessions, they can't be my disciple. That always grabs people right off the bat. I always, uh, I had an earlier version of this book and in interviews uh, or, or even in conversations, I would just, people would go right to that passage. And I would say, well, wait a minute, you just skipped past the one where it said you have to take up your cross and follow me. So you don't have a problem with, actually that you might have to die as a follower of Jesus. But when I say it has impl implications for your wallet, you know, you really get bent out of shape. And I have to admit that's, that hits me the same way. Mm. It's very challenging to say, you know, what does it look like for me to give up everything that I own? 
And I think that once you realize that, you know, you can't compromise on that, that pretty quickly some supports come in from Jesus himself, even in Luke 16. So you, you read that in Luke 14. And then by the time you get to Luke 16, he's telling his disciples what to do with their possessions. So it's not a necessarily a giving away of everything, but it's a giving up of everything. And mm-hmm. it changes your orientation toward uh, material resources. So, I mean, that's the one that uh, I think hits us the most um, and, and has been probably the area in my life through the years that I've been constantly asking myself, am I really following Jesus in this area of my life? Because I'm wow, a husband and I'm a father and I've got, you know, you got all those issues that come along with that, like 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 college education and 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 retirement and all these things that you 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 are concerned about um, as a head of a family. And how do I balance those concerns with that calling? to give it all to Jesus, to let him do with whatever he wants. Yeah. I mean, I think that there is a lot of the narrowness of the way that we may have taught people that leads us to, you know, I think it's easy for us to say, God, you can have my eternity, but not my checkbook. You know, <laughs> that's yeah. the sort of paradigm that we kind of like like to live into, but that just Jesus doesn't really give us permission for that to be a path to, to following him, uh, which is a great a great reminder uh, for I heard us a story. I heard a story one time about uh, it's. I'm. It's probably true that back uh, in in the Middle Ages, that that um, be, uh, people who were soldiers they would get baptized, but they keep one arm with their sword out of the water because they wanted to give their whole life to Jesus, except for their right to go into battle. And um, mm. I mean, it's kind of like that. We hold our wallet up, right, and we we go down <laughs> and we go everything but this. <laughs> Maybe our Venmo these days, right? Our- <laughs> That's right. That's, <laughs> That's right. Good. No, it's a great, it's a great challenge. Um, and, you know, it's, it's daunting. I've been, you know, in this role for two years and meeting, uh, I was just thinking of one of the pastors that I know who uh, during the pandemic, his church almost disappeared and he decided to stay and went back into full-time work in the community. Uh, hasn't taken a salary for three years, is continuing mm-hmm. to make disciples in that. And, you know, I'm burdened to try to help him and his family be in a sustainable place. But, um, you know, those stories just for me, it's just, um, uh, remind me of the reality of, of what it can cost to follow Jesus. He doesn't call all of us, like you said, to necessarily that, but would we be willing if God with the call of God was so profound upon us that we would hold so loosely to the things that we have in our hands? Uh, it's, it's a good, that's a, that's a good and, and profound challenge. So, well, um, and that's, that's something if I can just jump in and say, um, if I could have a chance to encourage pastors, there are very few pastors that don't have to wrestle with this in a really practical way, because this has probably always been true, but it sure feels more true to me today than in the you know the past few decades in ministry, that you can make money in a lot of different ways. And being in the church these days is not the best way to make good money. So anybody who's in ministry with their whole heart is is living out Luke 14, 33 and giving up their possessions. So way to go, guys and gals who are doing that because, um, w- well, we've talked about the, the need for leaders in our area and that it takes somebody who really um, is all in. Yeah, and I think the um, from this seat, the challenge I would give if you're sitting on an elder board or a leadership team uh, that you know, it is it is your job to the best of the ability as a church to care for your pastors and leaders. And 
you know, this kind of false thing that we are imposing a call to poverty is actually not not the fulfillment of what Jesus's words are. Uh, so th- that would be the the counterpoint that I would give if you're sitting in in this conversation. And you're a lay leader. Um, Absolutely, it's, it's a good th- good thing to look at and to consider. Um, yeah. So I, I was actually talking to a, a missionary um, who was staying at our house recently, and she's a second generation missionary. So her parents were missionaries from uh, in Togo, Africa, and now she's back there serving. And um, she was talking about how for so many for so long there was this paradigm with missionaries that it was a, a vow of poverty. So there was no provision for retirement or it would be unusual if they could afford a house when they moved back stateside after decades of serving. And we kind of made the comment that there's been a generation that was more com- comfortable with our missionaries dying in Africa than coming back and living in the United States. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, yeah. uh, you know, people, we should be willing again to be open-handed with these things. But I think as the broader church, this is the fulfillment of that. If you look at, again, play it forward to Acts 2, 42, is that that is where the body of Christ comes together and we together fulfill the needs of one another. Um, and that is sort of the, impl- you know, that's the, Jesus gives us the challenge, but the expression of that is fulfilled through the local church, uh, which is a, mm-hmm. is an awesome, awesome thing to, to see. Yeah, so great. fortunately, I think mm-hmm. that some of those stereotypes are, are hopefully being changed generationally. So that's a good thing. So and in the just new, in case anybody yeah. from my church is listening, the I would say at my church, that's true. My church takes yes. really good care of me and, I've been very fortunate in my career. So a lot of when I'm talking about uh, pastors or missionaries in poverty, I'm usually, um, I, well, I've always looked outside of my own context because God's always taken really good care of me in, um, in mm. my roles. That's great. Let's talk about disciples. We've kind of touched on this a little bit in terms of the challenge of the church, but let's think about discipleship. That, and I would say I am encouraged that there has been an increased focus on discipleship, disciple making, uh, the the ideas of spiritual formation, which are central to what we talk about with the Evergreen Way, I feel like those things are more in the spotlight. Um, at least in my lifetime, I feel like this is one of those eras. You know, the church tends to have this sort of swing of pendulum between different focuses, and I think, in a good way, those things are right now in you know that are in focus. But in terms of the church and how effective it is at actually doing it, what are your observations from the seat that you have? Well, first of all, I would say that the church is way better at it than it knows. I think that hmm. um, because because we tend we tend to make discipleship sort of programmatic. Um, I, I think that the terminology of spiritual formation has actually helped with that. Um, it becomes more organic when you start to think about it in those terms. But um, a lot of times when you're talking about discipleship, the question is how can we do a better job in our in the way that we structure our church, you know, our philosophy of ministry that helps people to become disciples. And I think that if you look at people and how they grow spiritually, it's not programmatic. It's probably in a lot of cases um, coincidental to the programs that you might have going on in the church, because what really causes people to grow, besides just being in, in healthy a healthy context, a church that is functioning in a healthy way, week to week, you know, just every time you show up, good things are happening there. I think that's important. But really the way that people grow significantly, and if you talk to anybody and long enough, they'll say, they'll, they'll say, there was this person in my life. And they'll, they'll mention who it was that decided to invest in them at a very deep level 
for a very long period of time. And programs don't do that. People do that. Hmm. And, um, and so almost always, if I look at my own life the, the, and, and my spiritual growth, I'm going to say there's two things that have, have affected me more than anything else. One is people that have been committed to me over the long haul. And the other is significant life experiences. I mean, that's how we grow. We grow when something seismic happens, right? You know, something big happens in our life and all of a sudden things become important to us. I mean, I, I, I don't start taking care of my body until after I have the heart attack. It's, it's kind of like mm-hmm. that. You know, things happen and we go, oh, I have to change. I have to, I have to grow. And those things have huge impact on our spiritual growth. So I think, you know, people and, and, and events are, it probably have more of an effect at least in my experience, have had more of an effect on people's spiritual growth than all the discipleship programs put together. So I'm, I, I think it's great if you want to do discipleship programs, but more than anything else, make sure that you're developing mature Christians who are committed to pouring into the lives of those who aren't quite as far along as they are, because that's going to make the biggest difference. So I don't think I'd find very many people that disagree with you, but I think the difficulty is actually translating that into the culture and reality of the local church. Um, you know, it could be, it could, you could hear an implication, like get rid of all programs, which I don't hear you saying. Um, but I do think if we're going to think about it this way, it is going to change the culture and maybe rhythms. So could you speak to that? Like, how does, how does that actually look on the ground to create maybe, um, you know, maybe the way to think about it is like, how could we cultivate the best soil in the community of our church for there to be vibrant spiritual formation? Yeah, I mean, I'm not anti-program, and I, and and I'm really I, I would say that I'm a student of people who have great ideas about programs more than I am somebody who is a critic of it be, be, because that's probably not my strength. Um, but pro again, in my experience, programs more than anything else are a reason that people get together. <laughs> And when they get together, that's when great stuff happens. And a lot of people would never get together if there wasn't a program. So, mm. if you know, m- men especially, it's like, well, what do we do? Why are we, why are we getting together? Well, we're going to go through this book or we're going to, you know, we, we have a notebook here that we're going to work our way through that. And, and then they do that. And then good things happen from that. But better things happen because of the fact that they're just spending time with one another. And what they really need is they need to rub up against each other. And programs, I think, are a great way to get people together. So my that's probably if somebody said, well, push this program, I'll say, I'll push it. You bet. I'll push it because I know what's going to happen is these people that God has been equipping to help other people to grow spiritually are going to step into it when they wouldn't if there wasn't a reason to do it. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. You bring to mind, I mean, we first met when I was serving with Berea Ministries and there was a a saying that Nate, who I work for, had there that I thought was really good, which is that fish need coral. Mm -hmm. Um, And the concept in terms of how we would try to think about programming in a camp context is you're creating these, you know, it could be the the gun range, it could be canoeing, it could be, you know, a campfire, but these are spaces for community and like there, there has to be an activity going on. Uh, and if we think of programs as that coral, I think we get, we, you know, we should be thoughtful about curriculums and what books we choose and those things. I'm not saying that we are dismissive of that, but I do think sometimes we over 
emphasize scope, especially in an academic corner of the country where scope and sequence is such an important thing um, that we overemphasize that and don't realize that some of the power, or as you said, like maybe the main power is in putting people in proximity uh, around the scriptures, around these things and the importance of that. And so maybe maybe a good paradigm for programs is that choral uh, to be able to, to think through it in, in that way. So I love that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think that um, maybe just to expand it from that camping context that you were just talking about, that in the church, it's not just your discipleship program that is making disciples. It's probably all of your programming. Um, anything that you're doing to bring people together it is creating um, discipleship opportunities in ways that you d- you never planned um, when you when you put it all together. So I love the f- yeah. I, I think that we've just learned in church ministry that um, that we were we were kind of defining discipleship a little too narrowly. Um, and what we needed to do was we needed to realize that that everything that we were doing that brought people together was bearing fruit. And mm. um, so just uh, don't lament when you have too few people in your discipleship ministry because people are too committed to their small group or to their ministry team that they're a part of or whatever else, because those things are making disciples too. That's great. I love that. Uh, so, so very much. Uh, so, um, I want to talk a lot more, uh, personal perspective here for you, Greg, um, as a Christ follower, uh, not just Greg, the pastor, but Greg, the Jesus follower, the son, um, what does it look like for you to walk with Jesus in this phase of life? Mm. Well, f- phase of life <clears throat> is an important part of that question. Um, I'm 62 and um, following Jesus looks different for me today than it did when I was 22. Um, I think that I probably looked at it back in the day as something where, where I needed to put together a pretty good package of spiritual disciplines, um, which are still, which still matter. But, um, those basic disciplines that I, that I really worked on in the early years, uh, you know, Bible reading and Bible study and prayer, um, those things are still really important, but I've learned a few things. I've learned that um, my spiritual pathway is wider than that. Um, for example, um, writing for me has been a spiritual pathway, and I just never anticipated that. I mean, I kind of thought of writing as a min- as a ministry to others, and then I was realizing that I was being deeply impacted emotionally and in the way that I thought by the stuff that I was actually writing for other people. You mentioned that book, Manifesto. Um, well, that book is the product of me taking the um, Sermon on the Mount and thinking about it very deeply, sentence by sentence, and writing about it. And I started to realize as I was going through this process, like I'm growing more through writing about this than I ever did when I was simply studying it, just reading it and trying to, you know, even even reading it at a deep level and using commentaries and all that kind of stuff. When I had to really express it, I was actually writing to myself, or or that's not the right way to say it. Somehow the Spirit of God was using that process to speak to me in a deeper way than than he had before. And so, you know, that took me a long time to learn that there was a spiritual discipline there that wasn't in any of the books. 
nobody taught me that that could be a, a pathway for me. So I just learned that from, uh, from experience. And then, um, of course, just life experience has so much to do with, with following Jesus, um, going through disappointment, experiencing failure, um, going through really dry times with God when none of the old ways of doing it work. I mean, all of that has been really important to me in um, developing perseverance, in learning to grow with other people and not in isolation. That's another thing that's come along. So I don't know, it's, uh, it's a convoluted answer, but um, I would just say that following Jesus now is messier than it used to be. Um, I find that it doesn't, you know, fit into this tidy little box, but but it's a beautiful thing to see God at work in my life in a lot of ways that I never knew he would be earlier on. Hmm. You know, one of the themes as I've been able to do a number of these interviews that you just um, touched on that I think would be really good counsel. It's good counsel to my heart, but to anyone listening is that I think it's very easy in ministry to look at the work, work of preparing a teaching, a sermon, writing based on the outcome and not find the joy of walking with Jesus in the process of that mm. and saying like, God, what do you want to teach me through the, not just what's going to come out of this, but what do you want to teach me through the discipline of doing this and mm-hmm. be like, and paying more attention uh, to that and how God is speaking to our hearts and minds through that formative process of the work. Um, Cause I think that that helps us, you know, that that's, and that's maturity of, you know, walking with Jesus for a number of years, but it helps us uh, sustain through those low points and those high points, because if it's only about the outcomes, if people love our sermon or don't like our sermon or read our blog posts or don't, you know, that, then we're measuring our success through that metric versus the the joy of the work that's before us. So I just want to say that that, that rings out from what you just shared. Um, well, I, yeah. I agree. And I think that, I think it's really, really hard to stop how do i say this the right way ministry success is really hard on the spiritual on your spiritual life because you really you get your you you get your strokes from that and you feel like you're being useful to god you know because of the way people are responding to what you do and um for me i didn't even know how much of a motivation that was until that was all taken away from me and when I when I went through um, our, I went through a church split as a pastor, which was utterly devastating for me. And I moved from a church that was you know maybe a couple of thousand people on a Sunday to a couple of hundred. Um, and that's the way my life has been ever since. I've never regained that th- those numbers that I had before. And I realize now, boy, that was really an idol for me, and I didn't even know it. I thought that that I was being genuine in. And that my motives were all pure, but um, but I had to have all of that stuff taken away, and I had to keep doing the same things week after week in my work in my ministry that I did before, knowing that I wasn't going to get the same strokes for it. And that's mm. when you go, well, is it is it still worth it to do it? Mm. And so I so actually, what used to be a hindrance to me, ministry was kind of a in a way a, a, an obstacle to spiritual growth. And through failure and through downsizing, it's actually become 
a blessing to me because now I think I can genuinely say that ministry is the way that I live out my Christian life. It's the way that I exercise my spiritual gifts. And it's the, and I definitely grow personally each week as I prepare a message because I'm not doing it for a lot. For, for, I'm not doing it for strokes. That's gone. And so uh, it has to be, there has to be something deeper. And, um, and I really like my job and um, the way, the, the way that my job affects my relationship with Jesus more today than I did when I was a lot more successful uh, in a worldly sense. Mm. Well, this is a, a really great word. Uh, you know, in the seat that I sit, um, I'll occasionally have people who want to move to the Northeast and, um, you know, they want to change the world for Jesus. And I don't want to like quote their ambition. But I often will tell people like, this is a take up your cross type of ministry. If you want to come to the Northeast, like you more than likely will serve in obscurity. You more than likely will not have a large church. And at the same time, you more than likely will find yourself right at the front lines of the work that God's doing if you pay attention to it. So there's a beauty and a sweetness in it, which you're you're articulating so well. Um, but it, it is it requires a different perspective and a different metrics of success. Um, and it, it is measured in years and not in sun, you know, one Sunday or the next and, you know, big launches or those type of things as well. So this is just a really, really encouraging, encouraging word. Um, and, and stage of life does play to this, but you mentioned one of the things you do. I want to say, um, Greg's a great follow on social media because he posts some of his beautiful photos of Maine. You'll, he uh, should be working for the tourist board of Maine, I believe, because uh, they are. You have a keen eye. I really, actually, do appreciate that, and it uh, makes me want to visit the great state of Maine, where my wife was born. So, um, but are there other things? What do you? Are there other things you do for fun in this season of life, Greg? That are part of uh, following Jesus for you? What do you? What are your hobbies? Um, well, I'm an empty nester now, so um, any any time I get to do stuff with my wife. That's very restoring for me. And I get to do more of that than I used to. Um, and she actually enjoys going with me when I do photography, which I can't imagine. I mean, the patience that it takes for her to sit there and watch me because I lose track of time when I'm taking pictures and she'll sit there happily. She'll bring a book along with her and just let me go. And so she's a, she's really supportive of, uh, what what I enjoy doing. Um, we take a daily walk together, which is so such a blessing to me. And you know, I'll do anything that I can do to spend time with my family. I have three bo- grown boys. Um, anything I can do to spend time with them. I now have a granddaughter, so any time I get with her is is that way. I'm a pretty typical empty nester slash grandparent in that um, I love anything that I can do uh, with my family, and uh, and photography is my creative outlet. Mm-hmm. Greg, this has been such an encouraging conversation. I know it will be for others, but as practicing what we've talked about, the experience of, of talking to you today has been really powerful for me. So thank you for that. Um, in terms of people who want to find your writing or connect with you, obviously your church is White Pine Community Church in, in Maine, but is there another place or where can people find uh, some of your work? Oh, well, I'm not very good on social media. So if you just know my name, uh, Greg Sitters, S-I-D-D-E-R-S, um, you'll find me on Facebook or on Instagram and my books at Amazon. Um, I have a I have a web address, gregsitters.com. I just don't have a website. So I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not good at, at that part of it. But um, 
if people are looking for me, they'll find me. And um, I love to connect with other ministry leaders. Um, and so uh, that's that's one of the most restoring things for me as well. So if by chance anybody uh, wants to connect with me based on anything that we've talked about today, I would welcome that opportunity. Um, I love to do that. And so maybe this will spur that uh, kind of relationship. Greg, thanks for a great conversation today. You've been a true blessing to me and I know that the listeners will enjoy this. Thanks so much. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Evergreen Way podcast. On behalf of our entire team at Converge Northeast, it is a privilege to bring you these conversations to help you to be a healthy leader for the long haul. We would love to connect with you. Find us on Instagram at Converge Northeast and feel free to send us a message. It's an easy way to connect. You can also send me an email directly at andy at convergenortheast.org. That's andy at convergenortheast.org. Let us know what resonates with you, as well as any ideas or suggestions for topics or interviews for future episodes. We appreciate it when you follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and know that a positive review is a simple way that you can help more people discover the evergreen way. Until next time, this is Andy Needham with Converge Northeast. Thanks so much for tuning in.